and welcome to another episode of the Tap on the Wrist podcast. Season four, spin the bottle. We're spinning every week. We're spinning. Who knows what we <laughs> shall land on. <laughs> well, for this week, we landed on Listicle. Uh, and for anyone who just happens to be jumping in on this episode, we created a magical looking wheel that we hand drew and put stickers all over and made as 90s as we possibly could. And we are spinning an alcohol bottle on it every week to pick our topic. And this topic happened to be listicle. Which is, I thought you were going to explain what a listicle was. Oh. <laughs> because we made that word up. Oh, we did. I think you're right. It's a list episode. We, we're going back and forth telling different st- mini stories, basically. Yeah, so a listicle episode is, yeah. What Vanessa just said? Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Um, I was going to mansplain you right there. <laughs> God, Laura. Um, and when we spun, we got listicle and then we were like let's spin again to see what we should do a list about and it landed on listicle again <laughs> yeah. so we're doing a listicle of a listicle no um no we found a really interesting list that we're gonna tell you about yeah I mean, it was like many history stories basically just random how how alcohol changed yeah. history yeah yeah um, we found that on Ranker.com and decided to, to go with that. Yeah. Since fate didn't want to tell us what to go with. <laughs> I guess not. Um, but before we get to that list, I wanted to mention this because Laura sent an article to me this week. I mean, I guess actually you can mention it because you found the article, but I thought it was pretty cool. I wish people could see inside our, well, no, I don't actually, our text chain, <laughs> because it is just full of, like, weird-ass shit we send to each other. It's like serial killers, books, alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> A meme here and there. Yeah. But, like, I, I'll be reading something, and I'm like, oh, i got to send this to Vanessa. <laughs> and I just, like, send her a link. So this link I found, um, it's insidehook.com, which I've never heard of. Don't ask me where I found this. I was article. just going to say, where did you find it then? <laughs> My phone knows me. It just tells me what to read. Um, but so this was, it's about the world's first naturally black gin. Which it looks super cool. Yes. And I mean, I think gin, I think clear. Yeah. Of course. But this is a naturally black gin. But in addition to it being black, it also changes color, which you're a fan of. Everyone knows I love a gimmick. Um, and so I, I just am all about that. Uh, and so for science, it starts out black, and that's because it's based on the certain berry that it is brewed with, and it's called the Aronia berry. And then they have, obviously, we know gin is full of lots of like botanicals and things. Juniper. Yeah, juniper. It This has butterfly pea, sweet potato, pineapple, saffron. Um, but it's the berries that go into the give it its dark color. And reading this uh, review of it, it's not a true black. It's really more a dark, dark, dark purple, like the darkest purple. Mm-hmm. Which is why when it's mixed with certain things of a pH level, mm-hmm. lemon juice or tonic... It affects the acidity, and so it'll go from that dark, 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 dark purple black to like a beautiful pink or lilac. Love that. So uh, similar to if you've had, you know, Empress Gin, uh-huh. right? Empress Gin is that really pretty royal purple, uh-huh. and when you add tonic, it goes to like a, a fuchsia. Yeah. So it's not the first gin to have that gimmick, but I just love that it is so dark. Yeah, almost black. Um, I really want to try it. I really want to try it too. We should get some. Yeah, I don't even know where we can get it, but if we find it, we will definitely let you guys know how it is because it looks cool. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, this review is very positive of it. They say that if you're not a gin fan, don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but if you are a gin fan, which both of us are, adding it with tonic and a bit of lemon. It's going to be, like, juicy and bright, and it's better for more, like, a fruitier gin cocktail Mm -hmm. more than, like, a Negroni-type cocktail. This would not be the gin you'd want to use for that. Um, So, 
we'll post about it on our social media, you know, either in our stories or, you know, in our post, just so in case you're interested and you want to know more about it. Did I even say what it's called? Actually, I don't know that you did. I don't think I did, but it's Scape Grace Classic Dry Gin, um, and it is, I mean, I just saw this article and I shared it with Vanessa and then we were like, oh, let's talk about it. So, yeah. You interrupted my social media plug, though. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So, we will post about it on our social media, and I'm sorry. You do that to me, and I'm never ready. Um, You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at a tap on the wrist. Yes, and if you see anything cool in the alcohol world that you think that we would be interested in, please feel free to share it at tapontherestpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, now, I guess... Get ready for that listicle of a listicle. <laughs> a listicle of a listicle. I mean, is there... I mean, why would anyone not want to listen to a listicle of a listicle? Exactly. So stay tuned. Here we go. We did some research and we came across some really cool articles um, that kind of inspired this week's episode. And so our source is from Ranker.com. And the episode title is 16 Times Alcohol Profoundly Changed History by Danielle Onbe. Or that, that, not that episode, the article. That's what I meant. (laughs) Uh, That was the Ranker article that we first found. And then as we went through those 16 stories, we realized we've told a lot of them already. So then we actually found a second source as well. The Insane True Story Behind America's History with Alcohol by Rachel Saubry. Also, a ranker list, a ranker.com list. So, those are kind of our two main sources. It's where we kind of got our ideas for the little research that we did. Mm -hmm. And then there are some additional sources that each of us might add if we used additional resources. Yep. But as most listicles go, we're going to go back and forth. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, I'm going to start with my first mini story today about how alcohol change history and this first person is someone I've definitely heard of before Louis Pasteur yeah heard of him you know I was gonna say appreciate his work (laughs) (laughs) yes um so here's the thing I have heard of him but science is not my favorite subject I think I've mentioned that before so I just I'm going to ask for forgiveness now as I butcher this story about sciencey things. Okay. <laughs> um, so, Louis Pasteur was born on December 27th of 1822 in France, and he actually grew up not very academic. He grew up loving painting and drawing much more than books. However, somewhere along the line that changes, <laughs> because by the age of 25, He not only completed a bachelor's degree, but also a master's degree and a doctorate in science. Get it, Louis. So, I mean, he was very smart. And most of his work was done in chemistry. And in 1848, uh, he became a professor of chemistry at the University of of Strasbourg. And it's there where he met his future wife, Marie Laurent. They married in May of 1849. And went on to have five children. So, pretty traditional life um, and for the time. And his research and, like, studying of science happened his entire life. And because of that, he has given the world many significant achievements. But there's really one that is his claim to fame. It's the one that holds his name. I was going to say, does his name hold a clue? <laughs> <laughs> and that is pasteurization yes and so again if you're not super into science you've still probably heard this word yes uh but so the dictionary defines pasteurization as a process in which packaged and non-packaged foods are treated with mild heat usually less than 100 degrees centigrade to eliminate pathogens and extend shelf life 
going to be honest, I didn't know how pasteurization worked until right this moment. I didn't know it involved heat. I yeah. no, had no clue. Uh, so I'll get, a li- there's a little bit more I explain later, but not much more than that. Okay. Um, <laughs> but for me, when I think of pasteurized foods, I automatically think of milk. It's like the yeah. one food 100%. that is like crucial that we consume regularly that requires pasteurization. But in reality, I did some research, and it's in a lot of foods, some you wouldn't even think of. So eggs are pasteurized, okay. honey, yogurt, cheese, juices, vinegars, nuts. Nuts? Yeah, I guess it, many nuts are treated with heat to kill all the bacteria before they're packaged. Okay. And Again, appreciate his work. Yeah. <laughs> So pasteurizing is a little bit different than sterilizing, Mm -hmm. I found in my research, uh, which is what you would use if you were canning items like jellies and jams Mm -hmm. to keep, you know, like those items in the cans fresh. Pasteurization, it's used to kill like deadly bacteria that could be harmful during consumption if a product is left to sit for a while. So like if you drink milk straight from an udder, it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) But if you milk a cow and then leave that milk sitting sitting, and then consume it, the bacteria has grown. Okay. So, like, that's how pasteurization allows milk to then be bottled and shipped to stores and have, like, a longer shelf life. And so a lot of dairy products require pasteurization. And that's why, like, nuts, if they're going to – you can eat peanuts straight out of, like – or off a tree – but, like, after it's been sitting. If it's going to yeah. sit for a while, like in a, a can of planters, mm. they need to be pasteurized. Okay. Um, and so it's just sometimes it's boiling, sometimes it's heating it up to a certain temperature. It kills off all the bacteria, then they can bottle it or can it. Okay. Okay. Well, it turns out that our good friend, Lou, oh, wait. Miss something. Yeah. I missed missed a sentence. So, what do pasteurized milk and alcohol have to do with one another? (laughs) Well, it turns out that our friend Louis eventually became a chemistry professor at the University of Lille, where he went on to study why wine and beer soured after sitting for a period of time. So before he discovers pasteurization, he gets this job, Mm -hmm. and the job is to study sour wine and sour beer and determine why it sours when it's left to ferment. And it's using these skills where he is able to demonstrate that organisms, such as bacteria, were responsible for the souring alcohols, and that if you heated them up, you would kill off those bacteria, and then the beer and wine would not sour as quickly. Interesting. And that process, the boiling and then cooling of the liquid, um, he runs his first test on April 20th of 1862, and the process is officially deemed pasteurization and goes into effect in 1864, and it becomes a common practice used in the food industry for hundreds of years. So, we all have sour wine and beer to thank for pasteurized milk. <laughs> Yay! Um, I'm, I mean, glad, I'm glad that happened, because... Agreed. And then, I also just had to throw this in there, because in addition to saving us all from consuming sour wine or milk, Louis Pasteur went on to extend his germ theory and develop vaccinations for diseases such as anthrax, cholera, TB, and smallpox. So, given the current climate, I'm pretty sure he'd be all about that back yeah. in 2021. He'd also be very confused why we all want sour beer now. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. it all goes full circle. But that is the story of how Louis Pasteur and sour wine and beer changed history. And I had two sources there. Um, one is stopfoodborneillness.org. Yeah, stop foodborneillness. Yes. <laughs> sensitive stomach here yeah and then I also use biography.com to get some of those like personal facts about him yeah um and so that is that is our good friend Louie what an important man I know who knew 
So I am also going to be talking about an important man, but I guess in a very, very different way. I'm sure most, if not everyone listening, has heard of Alexander the Great. Uh, anyone who hasn't or who doesn't quite remember like what he did, because sometimes you know I'll hear a name and I'll be like, I know them, but can't remember why. Right. Um, according to Britannica.com, he was the king of Macedonia from 336 to 323 BCE, who overthrew the Persian Empire, carried Macedonia, Macedonian arms to India, and laid the foundations for the Hellenistic world of territorial kingdoms. Already in his lifetime, the subject of fabulous stories, he later became the hero of a full-scale legend bearing only the sketchiest resemblance to his historical career, which I think is true. I think we know a lot of him, like, almost, like, mythologically. Like, right. he's almost like a mythological figure more than, like, who he actually was. Um, and the people source noted, and I'm saying this because I am over the age of 30 and it makes me feel small. By the age of 30, <laughs> he had created one of the largest empires in history, stretching from Greece to northwestern India. He was undefeated in battle and is widely considered to be one of history's greatest and most successful military commanders. I was just going to say, so when we teach him in like high school history classes... We always, the lesson is called, was Alexander really great? <laughs> and, like, we have the kids debate because, I mean, he did, to get to that level of fame, he did not great things. Not great things. We're going to be talking about one of those not okay. great things today. <laughs> so, like, I just love that lesson because, like, we call him Alexander the Great and it's kind of one of those monikers. He is a giant figure. Figure. Yeah. But is he great? Yeah. Is that the right word to yeah. Um, but yes, yeah, so we are going to be talking about one of the things that he did today, uh, specifically in 330 BCE, 330 BCE. How do you say fucking years back then? <laughs> That's fine. Either, either. Either one's fine. And what we're going to be talking about is his arrival and the conquering of Persepolis. Bear with me because I didn't look up how to say anything in this. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just going to wing it. So a little bit of background about Persepolis. Uh, it was known to the Persians as Parsa, I'm going to guess, which meant the city of the Persians and Persepolis, which is Greek, means the same thing. Um, it was named as the capital of the Persian Empire by Darius I the Great, uh, who ruled from 522 to 486 BCE. Uh, and it's important to note that Darius stored the greatest treasures, literary works, and works of art from across Achaemenid? Akeem the Achaemenid Empire is what I'm going with. Okay. Uh, and so he stored all these great treasures, all these literary and artistic works in this in this one city of Persepolis. Um, it would go on to be described as the richest and most impressive city in the world by ancient historians. And then came Alexander. <laughs> uh, I don't like that beginning. <laughs> <laughs> so at this point, Alexander had conquered the Achaemenid Persian Empire uh, following his victory over the Persian Emperor Darius III, so not the one who created Persepolis as the capital, but the third, uh, at a battle in 331 BCE. Of course, after this conquest, he wanted to make his way to the capital city. Again, it was one of the richest and, you know, most impressive cities in the world. And, of course, upon his arrival, he allowed his men to loot the city. So that's step one. <laughs> um, in fact, it was recorded that Alexander took an estimated 3,500 tons of precious metals from, like, all the palaces and stuff. That's uh, a lot of carrying back. Yeah, they apparently there were a lot of pack animals, pack mules, just loaded up with tons of, you know, gold and silver and whatever else. Um, Laura's cat put her butt in my face. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't like Alexander. <laughs> um, oh, she really wants some <laughs> Guinness, come here. Um, and then, so once Alexander and his men were done pillaging... What seems like an odd move, considering he now, like, owned that city, like it belonged to him, he had conquered it, uh, he decided the good course of action was to burn it to the ground. <laughs> oh. 
So, yeah, no, I mean, I'm laughing, but it's not funny. No. <laughs> so, he and his soldiers, after conquering and pillaging, had, like, a lavish banquet, basically. They drank a shit ton of wine, and it's, like, pretty known that they were all wasted. They were, all got really drunk because, you know, they were celebrating that they had, you know... Pillaged a town. Killed a... Probably mm. killed, raped, and pillaged a lot. So, you know, celebration. Horrible people. The great. Um, <laughs> and actually, Ranker noted it as a night of drunken debauchery. So we can only imagine what, what was going on. And, yeah, he decided that while he... While they were there, they should burn the city down. And, like, I know we've all made bad decisions when we were drunk, but... This seems like a really bad one, yeah. Yeah, yeah, pretty extreme. Um, Because, you know, when we make bad decisions, we're not burning down entire cities with hundreds years, hundred years worth of religious writings, art, uh, these magnificent palaces and audience halls, and all the knowledge about an entire empire. No, I mean, I usually, (laughs) I usually, like, get greasy food and then regret it the next day yeah, like that's yeah, my yeah. bad decision yeah i feel nauseous the next day maybe call someone i shouldn't you yeah know? Like, it's, not, <laughs> it's not this extreme um so it's believed that the burning may have been instigated by a woman named i'm gonna yes that's that thias thias is what i'm going with she was a courtesan of one of alexander's generals it's also claimed that Alexander decided to do this as revenge for the desecration of the Acropolis in Athens during the Persian War. Um, some say it's a mix of both, that she was the one that was like, you know, they desecrated the Acropolis, we should, like, ruin their city. That seems equal. Yeah, but uh, whatever the reason, history agrees that they were all drunk. Like, that's the one point that is pretty consistent. Because it was, I did read somewhere that later Alexander regretted the decision, as most people do when they make drunk calls. Uh, but again, no one makes them this badly. <laughs> Especially if, like, it wasn't even his own idea. Yeah. He was, like, led astray while drunk. Right. Yeah, but, yeah, apparently he did, he did later regret it. There is actually one of my sources, which I'll cite in a minute, an article on worldhistory.org that has a lot of, like, ancient um, historians, like, first, uh, like, accounts of the time. Um, So definitely check that article out uh, if you're interested in learning more about the event because, obviously, it's a list episode, so I didn't want to sit here and quote, you know, a whole bunch of ancient historians. Um, But, again, they all note that he was drunk. They all give similar reasons to the ones that I noted. And before I end this story, because that's pretty much the end, he burns it down, you can still see the ruins there, like, I think, was it 20 or 40? Somewhere around there, columns. Um, and you can go see them, but that's all that's left of all these magnificent palaces. Uh, and all the knowledge that was there is just gone. Sounds like a field trip. Just gone. Yeah. Persepolis, let's go. Persepolis, let's go. 2022. Um, but before I end, I do want to note, as Ranker, as Ranker says, in a case of karmic retribution... Um, it's actually believed that Alexander may have died because of a glass of toxic wine. So, like, he was wine drunk and decided to burn down a city. And then a couple of years later, I think when he was only 32, he then potentially died because of the wine he drank. Um, so for years, scientists and historians have kind of argued over whether he died of natural causes or whether he was secretly murdered by poison at a banquet. But according to a recent study, it may have been due to a glass of toxic wine made from a poisonous but harmless-looking plant. So a man named Dr. Leo Shep, uh, who's a toxicologist from New Zealand's National Poisons Center, believes that this plant was Vertitrum album. Again, I might be saying everything wrong, sorry. Uh, it's a poisonous plant from the lily family, and he thinks that due to the symptoms that Alexander had, that... They might have accidentally used this instead of like a different lily to make wine because uh, they're very similar the the symptoms that he had um but he does say it's just a theory and we will never actually know what happened to alexander which is interesting that it might you know he ruined a whole city on on his wine drunks night and then may have died because of wine i know imagine if he had lived to be 50 what he would have done oh not so, a lot of more not great things. 
Um, so the article that I was talking about where you can see some of those um, historical accounts uh, was called Alexander the Great and the Burning of Persepolis by Joshua J. Mark, and that can be found on worldhistory.org. Uh, and then I also used an article from The Independent called Mystery of Alexander the Great Death Solved? Question, solved? Question mark. Uh, ruler was killed by toxic wine, claimed scientist. That's uh, Alexander the Not-So-Great. Wonderful. Well, or not. <laughs> okay, my second story today, uh, we're staying over here in America, and as a history teacher, America likes to whitewash and tame down our terrible actions. Yep. Uh, and... Teachers are often given a curriculum that makes us sound like the okay guys. Like, we don't ever sound great. So, there are just time periods that we were terrible. Yeah. But it kind of makes us sound okay. I feel like that's changed. I feel like back in the day, it was always like, America did the right thing and they're great. So, I think we're starting to get to a place where we're like, we're not great. Yeah. Um, I can't wait till the place where like honestly we were awful yeah we're Um, being honest but so one of these cases in which you know the history in textbooks doesn't necessarily match what happened um but because textbooks completely remove alcohol from the story when in fact alcohol plays a major role um because they're teaching kids that don't mention alcohol and that would be the triangular slave trade or the transatlantic slave trade, um, which, if you're not familiar with it, operated between Europe, Africa, and the Americas from the 16th to the 19th century. And it is the process in which many enslaved Africans were brought to the Americas. And um, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about all three sides of the triangle, but. Like, in history, that's what we often... We're, we're often taught that it looks like this. And I'm going to show you a picture, and we'll post it online as well. So I'm going to show you the first picture, and this is the one that, like, I've definitely seen in my textbooks at school, and this is what we teach kids. It is a triangular trade. Yeah. Um, and so they say the trade starts in Europe. Okay. And the trade explorers would take their ships um, full of... Textiles, rum, and manufactured goods and go to Africa. Mm-hmm. Then they would trade those goods for enslaved people, load their boats up with the people, uh, go across the Atlantic Ocean to America, mm-hmm. then sell the enslaved Africans in America and take raw materials such as sugar, tobacco, and cotton that slaves had picked from these plantations and farms, and bring them back across the ocean to Europe. Um, and that is what we teach in school right. today. Like, that it's all kind of a business transaction. It's pretty much just, like, goods being traded for goods, um, even though there's people involved. Yeah. But we don't really talk about any of that. However, if you think about... Those raw goods traveling across the Atlantic Ocean, it doesn't quite make sense. Like, things won't stay fresh going across the ocean like that. Right. And if you really think about it, like, some of the things they say that are being brought down to Africa are not necessarily things that would have been used in Africa at that time. Mm-hmm. Like, textiles. Like, like there's just certain... If you really break apart the triangle trade as it is currently taught, taught, it doesn't quite make sense. Right. So many historians believe that um, the actual triangular trade, and this is one that feels most realistic to me, is a route that historians call the colonial molasses trade. And it is still a triangle. Um, but it looks a little bit more like this. And again, we will post these maps on um, our Instagram at a tap on the wrist if nice you want to find out. it. Yeah. But um, so the triangle looks more like this. Uh, and I'm going to explain this. This triangle, however, starts. Europe's not even involved. Uh, yeah, I know. The triangle starts actually in West Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, and. So slaves would be captured and brought 
to the Caribbean islands. Mm-hmm. In the Caribbean islands, they would be sold to work on sugar plants where uh, sugar is better grown. Right. Then that sugar would be brought to the American colonies and sold to distilleries okay. and like wineries and turned into rum. Right. And then the rum would be brought back to Africa and traded for slaves. Totally different. Very different. Um, and now the rum, I mean, yes, there, it is a very different triangle. Yeah, the triangle is different. The idea is not. Yeah. Uh, and I think in, on it, like, honestly, throughout history, um, the, I think they're both correct. Right? There's not one trade route that every explorer would follow. Uh, And there were thousands of boats doing this. So, like, they could both be correct triangles. But it's very interesting to me that we leave out the entire conversation of, like, the sugar being used for alcohol. And then the alcohol being what was being traded for people. Mm -hmm. Because, to me, that makes more sense... We know that alcohol transports well over time. It actually gets better over time. So being able to put it into casks and, like, take it across the ocean and trade rum for the enslaved people feels a little bit more realistic to me than, like, rugs. Yeah. Like, I... I, It just doesn't make sense. Right. No, I agree. I agree. And... We're not really taking Europe out of the equation because the American colonies oh, yeah, no. were all owned by Europe. So, like... Yeah, when I said Europe's not involved, I just meant, you, like, yeah, yeah. wasn't on the route. But, but like, yeah. in history, like, that's what people are like, well, no, Europe funded all of these. Yeah. And they did, but they funded it through the American colonies. Right. Um, which is why there is such a large African population in the Caribbean and... In, like, the American South, where slavery was so right. prominent. So even those parts of history, the second triangle makes more sense to me mm-hmm. when we think of the Caribbean islands and, um, like, their populations and their history and it being so, like, built on African history mm-hmm. is because it was a major point on those routes. Those routes, yeah. yes. So I found um, on a website... And it's kind of a random website, but it was a really good quote, so I wanted to use it. The website is westafricacooks.com. Okay. So it's it's all about West African food and history. Um, But so the quote was, For many years, enslaved Africans were purchased with rum. Slaves were purchased from African chiefs and shipped to the Caribbean to harvest sugar cane, which was turned to molasses and then rum which was then shipped back to Africa to purchase more slaves. A characteristic of rum is that it is easy to transport in hogsheads caskets. It keeps its quality or even improves its quality over time, which makes it... Over time, this makes it good for a long journey, such as a transatlantic voyage, and it was a byproduct of the sugar. Uh, And then there was another quote I found, and it said, By 1725... British traders at Sierra Leone reported to their home office that there was no trade to be made without rum. Rum became the practical currency on the coast and at the European forts, with prices for slaves uh, denominated in gallons of rum as well as ounces of gold. So they were literally selling slaves, like how much rum do you have on your ship? Is how many people we will give you. Um, and I mean that entire. I I could have done a full episode. On this part of history. But sure, because yeah. it was a list episode. I tried to keep it as contained as possible. And maybe it's a topic. We can revisit later in the season. But I personally truly believe. There are hundreds of different routes. That happened across the Atlantic. Um, because at the time. The world was exploiting Africa. And enslaving hundreds of thousands of their people for free labor in all parts of the Americas. Um, So, 
it's a tragic part of history, but, like, America should own up to it. Like, I feel like we definitely try and keep it as, like, covered as possible. But I also believe that instead of it being a triangular trade, it should be, like, a square trade. Yeah. I do think the most successful trade routes actually involved all four points. Right. And they would probably go from Africa to the Caribbean, the Caribbean to the American colonies, the American colonies to Europe, and then back to Africa. So, I think it should have four stops, and everyone wants it to be a triangle. I don't know why. Yeah. But so, my sources, uh, again, the Rink article, I use the People source, and then WestAfricaCooks.com. This is more of like a short tidbit. I saw it in the Ranker article and I wanted to include it because I thought it was interesting, but it uh, isn't really a full story. Okay. But that's okay because we have other these other full length stories that we're doing. So the Speed Racer. <laughs> so this is about Russia. Uh, and as we know, Russians love their vodka. That is, you know, just a thing. The vodka is very appreciated. I don't think any Russian would disagree. Yeah. Um, But what you might not know is that alcohol potentially played a pretty big role in the selection of their state religion back in the day. Um, And when I mean back in the day, I mean like, like far back. So I'm talking (laughs) about um, Prince Vladimir of Kiev or Kev. Kiev. Kiev of Kiev. Thank you, Laura. And when I Googled him, Vladimir the Great is who came up. So I'm assuming that is, that they just used another great man. They just, another great man. And they just used, you know, a different name in this Ranker article. Are there any queens that go by the great? Catherine the Great. Catherine the Great. Okay. (laughs) I knew there was one or two, but like all these men are great. I know. And why? Yeah. Um, but so he ruled, according to the people source, from 969 to 977. Uh, so again, I really mean back in the day. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so he, um, chose Christianity as a state religion for Russia. Uh, and the reason for that is likely because Christianity allows its followers to drink booze. So... Various religious leaders had come to Vlad's court to present their religions. I guess he made it known that he was picking a religion and everyone just came and was like, hey, here's one for you. Um, (laughs) And um, apparently his reason for rejecting Islam specifically was, quote, drinking is the joy of the Russes. We cannot exist without that pleasure. So, like, he was like, sorry, can't do this religion because I need my booze. I need my vodka. Um, And so Christianity is what he chose because it allowed it. And although it's not an official religion in Russia today still, it is still the most popular religion. um, Maybe because people want to get their drink on. And, you know, I mean, Christianity involves alcohol in their service. Let's be real. Yeah. We're all drinking that wine. Um. And this info really just came from Ranker, but what they used to find this out was actually um, from a history of the East Slavic tribes that was written in the 12th century called the Primary Chronicle. I did not go back and read the Primary Chronicle myself, though they, <laughs> though they did link to it, if you're interested. I was going to say, you didn't pick that up? No. <laughs> I, like, clicked a link because I thought it might be, like, an article about it, but it was literally the, whole... the Primary Chronicle, and I was like, yeah, nope, not going to read that. Um, but yeah, apparently Vlad, Vlad the Great, Vladimir the Great, whatever his name was, (laughs) liked to drink so much that he picked a religion based on it. That's, I mean, that's hilarious. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of how I rule my life. (laughs) Doesn't let me drink. (laughs) Where are we going to dinner? Do they have good cocktails? (laughs) So, I mean, Vlad sounds great. (laughs) I'm sure. Sure, he probably might not have been. Yeah. (laughs) Who knows? And, like, just, I know we say this before, we're not real historians. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. 
Oh yeah, we should, we should remind you that we're not historians. I know nothing about him. He may have been great, or he may have been like Alexander. Who knows? But Vlad liked to drink. Yes. That's what we That's know. That's what we know. Okay, my final story today is all about booze being used as a payment building the Erie Canal. So, the Erie Canal was built, uh, and for those of you that don't know what it is, it's a water route that connects New York City and the Atlantic Ocean to the Great Lakes. So, it runs for about 363 miles, connecting the Hudson River to Albany. Um, Well, the Hudson River goes to Albany, and then it connects Albany to Lake Erie, near Buffalo. Uh, And so this allows for trade and travel from the Atlantic Ocean to the Midwest to happen much quicker. And when it was dug or built in the 1800s, it would have been the fastest way to get to the Midwest Mm -hmm. uh, because this is pre-railroads, which is weird to think. Um, And that's kind of why, like, there was no expansion to that part of the country until railroads were built, because it was quite difficult to get there. Right. But the building of the Erie Canal does help with some trade and transport. Um, Prior to the Erie Canal being built, since there were no railways, everything that was moved west had to be packed on pack animals, and they could only carry so many goods. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... Just things didn't get transported west. Makes sense, yeah. Right. Um, at the time, New York had a governor. Uh, his name was DeWitt Clinton, um, which is, I mean, his name is all around New York City now. Like, Yeah, I was going to say, that sounds familiar, but like... DeWitt Clinton High School is probably what you're thinking. Yeah. It's like one of the largest high schools in New York City. Um, but, I mean, he's... A governor who built the Erie Canal. (laughs) Yes. They're not all great. Um, But he proposed building the canal, and many people opposed building the canal. Um, And he would go into these meetings and say, we need to connect the Atlantic Ocean to the Great Lakes. Mm -hmm. And people like, there's no way that's going to happen. We can't dig that much, dig that far. And he was like, we're doing it. Um, and many politicians kind of laughed at him. They thought it was going to be a complete failure. They even dubbed it Clinton's folly. Um, the whole time he like, but he was, he was gung ho. This was his baby. He was doing it. So construction begins in 1817 and it takes seven long years But the Erie Canal does open October 26th of 1825, and it took a lot of work because there is quite a major elevation difference from the beginning of the canal to the end of the canal. In fact, it's a difference of 565 feet. So in order to make the canal successful, there are 34 locks throughout the 360 miles. It sounds very complicated, but he was determined. But he was determined, and that's why people didn't think it would work. Yeah. Because, I mean, the you know how a lock system works on a river, yes? Not really. So basically, like, if the elevation has to go up or down because uh-huh. of the land, like, a boat will go into a lock, and, like, the water will be then dammed on both sides, and then they will add water into where the boat is, raising it. Okay. And then they'll open this dam and the boat can move forward. Interesting. And then, but you have to, a boat has to do that 34 times along the Erie Canal. Oh, shit. To to get to the elevation. So it is quite a process if you're traveling. However, he was determined to connect the Atlantic Ocean and New York City's ports to the Great Lakes because it would open routes into Canada and routes into the Midwest. Um, and he had a vision. Okay. And we can all be very thankful that he had this vision because the Erie Canal helped to create a population surge in western New York near Buffalo and Albany 
and it also gave a way for settlers to begin moving west. Uh, in 1834, just 10 years after it opened, and then again in 1862, so 40 years after it opened, the Erie Canal was enlarged both times to allow for larger barges and boats because it was such a successful route. Um, it was a highly in-demand travel passageway and the canal's peak year was 1855 when 33,000 commercial shipments took place along the Erie Canal. So Clinton was not a folly. No. It was very successful. But he and, laughed at everyone. Yeah. He was like, <laughs> and, you know, obviously it is not the main way to get to the Midwest now. Right. Railroads will be built, cars, planes. It, people aren't using the Erie Canal right. in this manner anymore. However, the Erie Canal is a historic treasure in America. Uh, but... For today's listicle, I want to talk about how alcohol is involved, and I kind of mentioned it at the beginning. It's really behind how the laborers were paid that I want to talk about. Mm -hmm. Canal diggers received 30 cents a day for 12 hours of digging. Because this is pre-mechanic like like tool. They weren't out yeah. there with bulldozers. They were right. out there with fucking shovels. <laughs> Like, oh man, and they dug 330 miles, all these different elevations and locks. Like, mind boggling that this project happened in seven years, yeah. to be honest. Um, and they can't even get like the subways done with today's technology. I know, in seven years. <laughs> I know. The laborers were paid 30 cents a day plus board and lodging, and so their board consisted of coffee and hardtack and a little bit of bacon for breakfast. Lunch, again, they got bacon, bread, and beans. And then at dinner, they were given stew, in which there were way more potatoes than meat because the meat was often full of maggots, but the potatoes were usually good. Ugh. And then, attached to every digger's contract at the time, was whiskey. Uh, every digger was given, it says, a jigger of whiskey at the end of the night. However, during my research, I found a little bit of conflicting information. Like, you would think that, okay, after a hard day's work, everyone's given whiskey. They can, like, wind down their evening in a right. fun way, get up and start digging again the next day. But I actually found that whiskey was often written into the contract as part of their payment. And I just want to ask, is my union listening? Like... <laughs> Can we get whiskey <laughs> written into a teaching contract for the end of my hard work day? You need it. I mean, hello. <laughs> but um, I did find a source, and I thought it was super interesting. This was written, it's from a pioneer Buffalonian named William Hodge, who remembers digging and the events of the Erie Canal when he was a boy. He is quoted as saying, our whiskey then was the pure article, made from rye without adulteration. Along the line of the canal, at convenient distances, was to be found another barrel of whiskey, pure old rye, with part of the head cut out and a tin dipper lying by, and all were expected to help themselves. So, like, not only did they get whiskey at the end of the night, it was also, like, it was like the water gallon. Of the day. Let me just grab a ladle full of whiskey. And, like, I know we've said this countless times, but every time it blows my mind that, like, back in the day, people would drink whiskey like water. In many cases because While it was... working. In many cases because it was safer than the water. That's true. Yeah. But, like... And that goes... Full circle, back to my good friend, Louie. Yep. Like, Louie learned how to keep whiskey safe for longer... But, um, I, did, I just put that together. That was... Just a loop from yeah. your first to your last. Yeah. But I just, it always fascinates me the way that, you know, I feel like alcohol now is, like, so, not taboo, but, like, it kind of has this... You don't this, drink during the workday, especially when you're doing manual labor. <laughs> well, right. It has this, like, vice attached to it, this, like, 
you know, belief that like, oh, if you drink, it's bad for you or it's not good. Uh, certain people believe that, right? Yeah. Or like, yes, you don't drink while working and all of these things. But like, these people, like, they seemed happier. <laughs> like, they, they worked for 30 cents a day. And they were like, just give me my booze. Just give me my maggot stew and booze. <laughs> oh, no. I know. However, okay, just to tie this up. In the year 2000, Congress designated the Erie Canalway a National Heritage Corridor to recognize the national significance of the canal system as the most successful and influential human-built waterway and one of the most important works of civil engineering and construction in North America. But since the 1990s, the Erie Canal has mainly been used for recreational watercrafts and much less like barges and goods. But it is still there. You can go visit it. We can go on a day trip if you want. Go to the Erie Canal and then fly across the world to go see Persepolis in one day. (laughs) I mean, cheers to that. Okay, I want to already fact check myself. Okay. Because after I finished that little mini story about Vlad, the, Vladimir the Great, uh, I looked and I said that he reigned from 969 to 977. He did as Prince of Nov, Novgorod, probably saying that wrong, uh, but he was the Grand Prince of Ki- Kiev mm-hmm. uh, from June 11th, which is my birthday, 980 to July 15th, 1015. And that was the period of time I was talking about. Oh, okay. Just wanted, just wanted to correct myself. So Again, was, we're not historians. Yeah. <laughs> so he was in control for a lot longer. Yes, yes. Okay, so now we're done with the greats. We're moving on to a period of time that we're very familiar with, Prohibition. Now, we've talked a lot about Prohibition in the past, so I'm not going to kind of go into what that was. Listen to season two. <laughs> yes, if you want, if you are interested, please go back to season two. We talked a lot about the background, uh, a lot about what life was like back then. I am going to be talking about pre-prohibition, uh, which is also a time we've talked about a lot, but in a different way. So the second ranker article that Laura cited at the top of the episode had a section that said that there was a pre-prohibition wine mega sale. And I was like, tell me more. Why Why so? <laughs> um, so after the Volstead Act was passed, um, there was a period of time like after it was passed before it officially kicked in. And that's that's what I'm talking about. So winemakers in America decided to take advantage while they still could. You know, they saw the writing on the wall. They were like, oh shit, we're not gonna be able to sell our wine. Um because as we've said, although it was technically allowed to drink during Prohibition, you couldn't sell alcohol. Um, and so they concentrated on selling off as much of their wine as possible through the California Wine Alliance. So an article that I read on Wineful, Wine Folly noted that winemakers needed to sell off stocks about, of about 50 million gallons of wine. Uh, which is equivalent to 75 Olympic-sized swimming pools. Like, that's the amount that they were trying to push in these months that they could before Prohibition officially kicked in. Um, And they were pretty successful. About 141 million bottles of wine were sold to the public within the three-month period after the Volstead Act was passed. People were like, let's stock up. I mean, wine. Have you ever seen a wine shelf when Hurricane is coming? (laughs) (laughs) Imagine they're going to tell us alcohol can't be (laughs) consumed. Yeah, you're stocking up. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, And apparently a lot of people had felt tricked into voting for the Volstead Act because they believed that alcohols like beer and wine were going to still be allowed, which obviously wasn't the case. So when they found out that they were going to not be able to buy anything, they were like, give it to me now. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and I do want to note while they were pretty successful at getting rid of their stock before the Volstead Act, there was one businessman who did something a bit different. So his name was Horatio Lanza, and instead of unloading wine, he loaded up on wine. And, um, well, I guess it was technically a criminal act for him to do this. He made a ton 
ton of money during Prohibition because he had the foresight to stock up on wine and sell it illegally. Oh. Um, so he purchased 1.3 million gallons of those 50 million gallons that they were trying to unload in the California Wine Alliance. Uh, and again, he sold it during Prohibition for a really high profit margin. And I mean... That's the kind of business minds I can appreciate. I... A great mind. Truly great. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know nothing about him. He may not have been great either. Could you imagine <laughs> selling this man $1.3 and being like, Sir. <laughs> I don't know that you need this many gallons of wine. <laughs> Sorry, you said $1.3 Like... Where, like, could you, I, I can't imagine the person that made that sale. <laughs> they were like, all right, I gotta get rid of it, so if you insist. Um, <laughs> however, there were some wineries that were uh, kind of smart in Horatio's terms and decided that they were going to keep going. Because if you look, there are a lot of wineries that, like, opened in the 1800s that are still going, you know, in the California area. And that's because they were also thinking like Horatio and being like, how do, how do we benefit off this, this situation? So lar- that largely had to do with the selling of sacramental wines. Back to Vlad, drinking in Christianity. Amen. <laughs> Circling all these things together. Um, <laughs> amen. Uh also had to do with a provision in the Volstead Act that allowed the legal production of quote-unquote fruit juices in the home. Oh. And so people were like, I like grape juice. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And what do you need to make wine, aka grape juice? Grapes. Yeah. So obviously, um, there were tons of acres of vineyards. I think it's at about 300,000 acres of vineyards in 1919, so right before Prohibition. And all those grapes had to go to someone. Uh, there was one winery in particular. I'm going to say it's Bring- Bringer? Is Bring- Beringer? 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 I think it's Beringer Wines. What do you, are you familiar with them? Well, I, mean, I think they're still a winery. Yeah, they are. Yeah. Um, they're one of the ones that made it through Prohibition. And uh, they sold what were called wine bricks. Uh, According to winemag.com, wine bricks were legal bricks of concentrated grape juice that consumers could dissolve in water and ferment by simply following the instructions printed on the packaging that masqueraded as a warning of of what not to do to prevent the product from turning into wine. So they wrote instructions like, don't do this and don't do this because then this will become wine. Wink, wink. Genius. Why is that not a thing today? <laughs> wine bricks? I want to make my own wine. With a wine brick? With a wine brick. <laughs> Behringer. Bring it back. <laughs> Call me. <laughs> At a tap on the wrist. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry for saying your name wrong. Just call us. <laughs> um, but isn't that genius? Like they printed like what not to do to make it wine That's so, so that people can make it into wine. Um, and so they were able, obviously able to stay afloat. They became um, a wine, a, a, a survivor of, of prohibition. <laughs> I'm a, a survivor. <laughs> so it said, the article that I read on winemag.com said that by 1927, the acreage had almost doubled and shipments of grapes grew by 125%. So, like, a lot of wineries were taking advantage of this, like, make juice at home trend. (laughs) You know what's so funny to me is all the talks we've done of Prohibition have almost always been, like, beer and whiskey. Yeah, we don't talk about wine. We don't talk about wine and Prohibition, so this is, like... Brand new information. Brand new info. I love it. (laughs) I know. That's why when I saw it, I was like, wait a minute, that's kind of cool. I didn't really think about wine ever. Um... And there were some wineries that participated in, like, the bootlegging side of the business. So there was one example in the article I read called Pope Valley Winery, which is kind of funny that it's Pope, but, you know. Uh, But it's Pope Valley Winery, 
and they sold and transported their wine on a horse cart that went down to Napa and then it boarded a train to Chicago <gasps> where it made its way to the speakeasies and brothels of our good friend Al Capone. Yay! Yeah. Again, you should check out season two, deep dive into Capone and Prohibition. Right. Um, but yeah, no, a, a lot of wineries made bank during Prohibition by through their wine bricks and their grapes and their illegal actions. That's so fascinating how much we've talked about Prohibition that we don't talk about wine. I know. The vineyards. I know. I'm so intrigued right now. Something to look look into in the future. Okay, so my sources for this story, uh, besides the Ranker article, were What Really Happened During Prohibition by Madeline Puckett. Uh, that was from winefoley.com, and it's actually the article that was linked through Ranker, so they probably use the same article. Uh, and then also an article called How Prohibition Shaped American Wine Country by Shayla Martin, and that was from winemag.com. Well, we hope you enjoyed that list. Uh, but we recently went to Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, and we know we always talk about bars in New York, so we figured we would take this opportunity to highlight some Raleigh bars for our bar of the week. Yeah. Uh, and Laura really wants to talk about one cocktail in particular, so. <laughs> the first bar that we're going to talk to is one I think we actually did in a previous season, or Laura talked about it. She had been to it, but this is my first time having gone. Um, it's called Bittersweet, again, in Raleigh, North Carolina. Right. I'm going to open the floor to Laura so she can talk about her cocktail. Let me tell you. <laughs> If I ever, like, this cocktail bar, I just want to take it and move it to New York. Yeah, it's I've, so good. I've been there twice uh-huh. and been blown away both times. Um, but when we just recently went, I had two cocktails. Mm-hmm. And one was good, but the second one was phenomenal. <laughs> and it was a key lime pie martini. I had a sip of it, so I can confirm. Delicious. It, I mean... It tasted like key lime pie. It, it tasted like you were drinking a key lime pie, which sounds like it might be weird, but it was delicious. I wish I could express how good it was. <laughs> you can't, can't find the right words? No, it was tangy and sweet and creamy. And perfect. And perfect. It really was. Yeah. My drinks were also delicious, but I feel like they are overshadowed by Laura's <laughs> Laura's drinks. And they also have really good desserts. I got an incredible s'mores dessert. It is like the best s'mores dessert I've ever had in my life. Well, that's the whole concept of this place. Yeah. Is it's bitter, bittersweet, but I think it's bitters and sweets. Yeah. Like, so it's amazing craft cocktails and amazing desserts. And I couldn't ask for more. No. Sorry. I... I couldn't ask for more. I need it. And you're right. I need it to come to New York. It was incredible. And I highly recommend if you are ever in Raleigh and you enjoy dessert and you enjoy cocktails, hit them up. Bittersweet. They usually have a gluten-free dessert as well because our friend that we went with is gluten-free. True. Uh, so if you have gluten intolerance, you can still go. Yes. And then... I mean, that whole night was great. Yeah. So we did bittersweet, and then we went and did an escape room, because that's who we are. Yep. Um, what was, was, it was Prohibition-themed, wasn't it? It was. It was a pro, <laughs> it was, it was a Prohibition-themed escape room, on brand for us. <laughs> so on brand. And then we followed it up by, like, a more, like, a, a fancier bar. A speakeasy. It was a speakeasy called Watson Ward. Uh-huh. Also downtown Raleigh. Um, and this is, like, very true to that traditional, like, speakeasy vibe. Like, yeah. dark interiors. We'd go, like, downstairs. Yeah, go down um, stairs. It had, like, all the old vintage pictures, bartenders dressed up. Um, just lovely. And, you know, my tried and true cocktail at a place mm-hmm. like that is an old-fashioned and it was great. Yeah, and I got my favorite cocktail, French 75. And I be- there was another, like, take on the French 75. I want to say it was, like, the Carolina, which makes sense because we were in North Carolina. Um, 
I'm trying to look it up really quick. But it, it looked very much like a speakeasy that we would go to in New York. Right. Um, and they, I mean, I, they had music and just like, it was very quaint and lovely and we like sat and enjoyed our evening. We will post pictures from both bars. Yes. On our social media. Yeah. I can't, I, my internet does not want to work for me right now, but I promise that that alternate French 75 was delicious. So, I mean, they have just, every city has great places to go. You just have to find them. Yeah. Like, try something new. Explore your own town. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and let us... No, if you find anything that you think that we should try uh, whenever we're traveling. Yeah. Um, so as we were saying, you can you can find pictures uh, at on our social media of some of our 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 stories today, yes. as well as the bars we just mentioned. That key lime pie martini. And I'm looking cute in that picture. Out. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you can find us on social media or find us on Instagram and Twitter at a tap on the wrist. And like I said, give us recommendations um, or bars that you think that we should shout out. It's tap on the wrist podcast at gmail.com. And uh, with that, we'll leave you again. Check out our social media. Another plug for it to see what our spin is for next. Yeah, week. we're going to spin the bottle right now and then yeah. we'll post the video online. And you'll find out what we're talking about next week. (laughs) All right. Cheers. Cheers.